You're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of In Psychedelia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. Good afternoon, my name is Nick and this is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. While you're at the website, you can head along to the In Psychedelia program page, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can also find a link to our website where you can get in touch with us there and see a little bit more uh, news and information there. Uh, a lot of what we talk about on the show uh, does have the content extended via uh, Facebook and Twitter conversations, and you can find a lot of the articles that we talk about or uh, issues that we talk about there as well. Uh, during the show, we do discuss a wide variety of issues around drugs. We neither condone nor condemn the use and we aren't here to talk about or promote abstinence nor suggest that you commit a crime. So the decision is yours. We're here to uh, talk about uh, the issues around drugs. Uh, Ash is uh, in the studio today. Ash, uh, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, folks. You were at uh, Burning Seed last week. Yeah, it was Quite a thing, beautiful One thing, beautiful thing. Yeah, it was um right, right up north in in New South in Wales, in the Riverina district of New South Wales. Yes, so a uh, very successful event overall. I would think so, given that it's a community-run organisation where people volunteer their time to help organise, administrate, and run the festival. And, um, and just for anyone who hasn't heard before, what is Burning Seed? Uh, it's the Australian uh, regional event for the Burning Man community, which started off as a festival, I think, in 1968 in the US. And it was essentially a bunch of people, you know, got around and had a bit of an event where they burnt an effigy of a man for whatever spiritual significance they took of it. And, uh, yeah, basically created this community and festival based around uh, some principles such oh, this, as non-modification the... and radical self-expression, this sort of thing. So it's it's essentially a week-long experiment in a different way of living and a different way of doing a festival as there's no commerce on site, there's no markets. Mm. It's a gifting community where people bring things and share them with other people. Yeah, so that would make it uh, quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Also, thank you to um, Freedom of Species. They will be back from 1 o'clock next week. Um, and um, I think we're going to get stuck into some news in just one tick, but we will uh, also be having an interview uh, later this program with two artists who are currently uh, exhibiting their works at the Brunswick Street Gallery until the 15th of October. Um, it's called The Rights of Humans in a Digital Age, and we'll, we'll be hearing from them in a little bit. And psychedelia news of the week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or, or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics 
uh, and we'll just say, oh, well, then the, the, the government are not looking after us. And therefore, it seems as a law and order issue rather than a, a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a public health basis. Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. So first article for this week, the Sydney Morning Herald had quite a comprehensive write-up of the uh, way that uh, SSRIs, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as Prozac, um, have come onto our market and become almost ubiquitous amongst the affluent middle class. Um, One of the reasons it uh, became popular was the dose was one pill per day. Unlike tricyclic antidepressants, it was impossible to overdose. And unlike the benzodiazepines, there was um, no risk of addiction. So three decades later, um, the journalist here has done a bit of a review and kind of looked at things. And there's there's some risks possible with these kinds of drugs. And, and that's we covered it in the show uh, a week or two ago, I think, with um, Arapax and drugs like that and, and how the pharmaceutical companies have, to some extent, misrepresented their effectiveness. Mm. By so, not publishing um, the data that uh, goes against... That's right. The- <laughs> and in, in no way am I su- suggesting that you do or you should or shouldn't take antidepressants no, no, if that's absolutely. what you're currently the doing. The do- doctor's a good person to go to with, uh, for that kind of advice. <laughs> <clears throat> that's correct. Uh, uh, from policyforum.net, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, um, set a goal in 1998 to be a drug-free region. Now, uh, what's that, nearly 20 years later, the region has one of the highest rates of amphetamine-type stimulant usage in the world. So that's uh, um, amphetamines like ice, um, speed, etc. Um, and uh, not only does it have one of the highest usage rates in the world, um, but many countries in the re- region also have an appalling record for human rights abuses, with things like compulsory detention going on, denial of health care for people who use drugs, and severely dispro- disproportionate penalties, including executions, which we're quite aware of with the uh, recent... Uh, execution of Andrew... Uh, Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumara. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, the Courier Mail up in uh, Queensland again. The, the Sunday Mail has uh, published some data on prescription drug-related harms and hospitalizations in Queensland. Uh, from 2012 to October 2014, benzodiazepines, which are antidepressants and sleeping tablets, Valium is the, the name you might be familiar with, uh, re- uh, created hospitalizations of 7,168 people, and next on the list was other opioids such as oxycodone, which resulted in 3,908 hospitalizations. In comparison, heroin was the cause of just 309 cases and cocaine at 68. So starting to get some traction now that some rugby players have gotten in trouble and and the issue of uh, prescription drug abuse and misuse is certainly gaining some attention. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of uh, the the use and misuse, um, this week we also heard that... um and I thought it actually written out in a uh, story for this, but no, uh, this week we actually heard that uh, the codeine-based um, painkillers would be rescheduled by the TGA to be a prescription-only medication. used to be something you could go to the pharmacy, get over the counter, that's no more, and that's because doctors are concerned about the uh, number of uh, people that are having problems with things like um, codeine-based painkillers and uh, misusing them and causing harms. I certainly think there's more can be done there, but you need to be careful about 
restricting their use, what happened in the United States? Uh, they're currently dealing with this issue and, and when they kicked people off the pharmaceutical grade opiates, they've got an increasing heroin addiction problem there now. So exactly. have to be a little bit careful with the way you regulate it. And from the Boston Herald, uh, they had a piece on uh, substituting opioid painkillers, like uh, codeine-based painkillers, with cannabis with some success uh, for uh, pain, uh, for redu- reduction of pain. Um, and this is especially relevant given that the uh, given that the rescheduling has happened. So apparently some of the cannabinoids, are, although they work in a completely different way to the opiates in painkilling, um, they might be... Uh, uh, working in a way that is less harmful to the body overall. Indeed. Um, something a little bit different that caught my eye this week. Uh, a sailor who was allegedly caught with 5,000 pills in his car may have his charges downgraded due to the low purity of the drug, which I thought was an <laughs> was interesting take on or? it. <laughs> well, I'm not really sure. He, he faces charges of possessing more than 200 grams of MDMA, but the Supreme Court has heard that this was likely to be downgraded to a charge of possessing more than two grams. I think that's to do with how much of the active ingredient is actually there rather than the the mass of it, which is probably Mm. a good thing because that's one of the problems with the drug laws in terms of prosecuting for mass bulk actually creates an incentive for people to make stronger drugs, which could be dangerous. exactly. Uh, The International Drug Policy Commission published a 24-page report entitled Tough on the Weak, Weak on the Tough, and this is a quote from it. Uh, It says, From the standpoint of public health, uh, the criminalisation of drug use and its suppression by the police not only has produced disproportionate response, it has also reduced the possibility of providing the treatment needed for people with serious addiction problems as limited resources are concentrated on implementing uh, implementing punitive measures and criminalising users. And also from the um, United Nations, they are gearing up for a, uh, a, a special assembly session in April next year, which will be discussing the three drug treaties at the heart of global prohibition. And um, uh, a lady called uh, Ms... I'm, pronoun- I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, so apologies on that, but uh, Ms. Flavia Pantieri, uh, she's the UN Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights, and she had uh, this to say on the drug policies. Let me start with the right to health. This council recognised the need for harm reduction programmes. Today, such measures, including syringe exchange programs and opioid substitution therapy, are available in a little bit less than half of the countries worldwide. However, the availability of these measures in prisons is much, much more restricted and is urgently needed. Harm reduction measures have been proven to help quite substantially in reducing HIV infections as well as limiting the transmission of other blood-borne diseases and viruses. And they do so in a cost-effective manner without any major negative consequence. This brings me to the issue of decriminalization. The Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health called for decriminalization of the possession and use of drugs already in 2010 in his report to the Council. WHO and UNAIDS have taken similar positions. This is because criminalization of possession and use has been shown to cause significant obstacles to the right to health. And let me just highlight a few. In states where drug use is criminalized, 
drug users may refrain, and one can understand that, from seeking health care for fear that they could be arrested or imprisoned, included in drug registries or subjected to treatment against their will. And I'll post a link up to that full video. It is about three hours long because it is the full um, address uh, of uh, one of the UN committees. Um, but there are some interesting tidbits in it. It's good to see what the... Uh, apparently um, United Nations <laughs> is uh, discussing on this issue. Uh, the Age published uh, earlier in the week that one in nine motorists tested positive for illicit drugs over the grand final weekend. Um, of the 1,900 Victorian drivers tested, 218 were found to be, and this is their terminology, under the influence of drugs. Um, and the ratio of people caught drink driving was much lower. So... Right, and uh, again, this comes back to that issue of are we testing for impairment? Yeah, and so following on from that, the Sydney Morning Herald has published that um, the Greens in New South Wales have obtained under freedom of information laws that there is no lower limit to the amount of drugs that are uh, detectable in the saliva of people uh, that are subjected to the oral testing. So there's a little bit of a political pushback in New South Wales at the moment. Um, courts are being clogged up by people that are being detected with the metabolites of drugs in their system and being prosecuted as if they're impaired when there, there isn't actually any evidence of impairment. Mm. And they've also pointed to the, the British example, which has had an attempt to set threshold levels for the amount of the drug metabolites found they're trying to correlate with some level of impairment, so they're at least mm. trying to be a bit more consistent there. And uh, I, we've, we've discussed this um, at length uh, on the programs because it is one of the, the focal issues of uh, drug uh, policing at the moment, um, but it is very difficult uh, to get the same correlation between impairment and a level of a drug metabolite. doesn't quite work the same as with alcohol. Alcohol seems to be a bit of a gold standard for that, and surely there are ways to test impairment with other drugs, but it, they're... They're all very different. Yep. They all have very different effects on people's cognition. Yeah. Uh, this from Huffington Post. The Visionary Convergence was a uh, conference held about uh, three weeks ago in Los Angeles. And uh, there's a story in Huffington Post speaking especially about um, the use of entheogens. And entheogens is a word, uh, another word for, for psychedelics. It means to sort of uh, manifest God. It's a... a Substances that are used for religious or spiritual purposes. So, um, uh, a lot of the traditional uses of um, of psychedelics would be considered entheogenic use. Um, and ayahuasca is going to be discussed in a workshop at the Parliament of the World's Religions, which is a major interfaith conference. And uh, the article uh, goes on to discuss with uh, somebody involved with this how the regulation of these sorts of things work and um, regulating that practice is... Uh, uh, there's a lot of questions, a lot of questions around how and who gets to do that. Uh, friend of the show and regular guest Greg Denham, the Australian head of law enforcement against prohibition, has a piece published in The Age today uh, calling for a complete rethink on the war on drugs. Um, he drops a nice bit of truth in, in the piece, uh, acknowledging that, yes, drug use is 
functional, with a capital F-U-N, for many people, and it's highly likely that drug use, even recreational use, will highly unlikely that uh, drug use, even recreational use, will ever be eliminated. Uh, nearly every society throughout history has used drugs, and drugs are here to stay. Um, and research shows that people who use illicit drugs want certain things from their drug of choice. They want to know exactly what it is that they're taking. They want to be safe, and they would rather use something that is legal and they don't want to be stigmatised and discriminated against based on their drug choice. And uh, finally, a um, article from Reality Sandwich uh, with a claim that D- a DMT brew, not ayahuasca, but like ayahuasca, may have been used by some of the formative Freemasons 400 years ago. Now, this, uh, I believe Reality Sandwich or Time Wheel, one of these um, uh, sort of psychedelic news websites, also had the claim that uh, Moses and the Burning Bush, that might have been an acacia bush, bush and DMT. And there's there's certainly a hidden history of um, of psychedelic plants uh, being, being used, um, but uh, I think it's very hard to gather the evidence required to make a substantial claim. Uh... We're going to have an interview with uh, Andy Thomas and Steve Willis, two artists who are exhibiting at Brunswick Street Gallery uh, up shortly. But right now, this is Sticky Buds versus Mr. Savona, Clean Air, featuring Burrow Banton on 3CR. Yeah, man. Clean air, clean country. Anywhere we walk, globally, veteran Burrow Banton, I teach them. <laughs> yeah, man. I met them a deal with Mother Earth, so. Yeah, man. Them a mash up the earth. With the mass destruction, global warming, too much pollution, yeah, killing off the birds, the fishes, man and woman, yeah man, globally.
3CR 855am uh, on digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au where you can also head along to the Encyclopedia program page, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, plenty of information, anything that you hear in the program you'll probably find on either the Facebook or the Twitter as well and you'll find articles about all sorts of things. You're listening to Encyclopedia. My name's Nick and right now in the studio I have uh, two uh, quite talented artists with me. Uh, Steve Willis who is also known as the Light Wizard and Andy Thomas who I, I actually thought you used to be known as Android, but then it might have got confusing considering there's also another visionary artist from the US called uh, Android Jones. Was that? That's right. And then Google came along with Google Android and everything <laughs> got all mixed up and confusing. Far too troublesome. That's um, right. So, uh, Andy, let, let's, we'll start with you. Uh, when did you first uh, start getting into art and when did it uh, become this this uh, this digital schmozzle that you do now? Um, I've always gotten into art. I think when I started doing flyers for dance parties, I really kind of um, kicked off with the digital stuff, using Photoshop and then using starting to use 3D programs and teaching myself. Um, yeah, probably, and I guess that was 1998, about then. It's been quite a while. You've gone through mm. the whole um, computerization of art, just about, I, I, I guess. Yeah, I a big chunk of it, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about that, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose you probably probably don't reflect on it too much. I remember being normal. at uni and we had little tiny black and white monitors um, like apples. So yeah. that probably says a lot. About yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it wasn't quite those um, green ones, which were slightly older than the black and white ones. If you remember yeah. the green ones? I do remember yeah. playing yeah, tennis or something on those, yeah. <laughs> and, and Steve, what about you? How did you first get into 
doing the art? I got into photography when I was in high school, um, around the turn of the century, 1997-ish, and uh, creativity really sparked an interest in me, as it was one of the few subjects in, uh, in high school that actually sort of made sense to me and sort of resonated with me. And I went on to study uh, photography in San Francisco for a few years before moving to Australia. And during my 20s, I was just uh, just trying to make a living, really, and sort of put artwork aside until I was about 30 years old. And I, I, I realized that I was going to die one day, pretty much. And uh, I knew that I needed to, to pursue my passion Maybe. and actually uh, uh, give it a go. And it's probably the best decision that I've ever made, so... And both of you are now uh, present, or presenting as part of an exhibition with about a dozen other people uh, in an ex- exhibition called Rights of Humans in a Digital Age at the Brunswick Street Gallery. So how does your art relate to the rights of humans in a digital age, uh, Andy? Uh, well, a lot of my artwork is about um, technology and its infiltration into the world that we know. Um, and a lot of it's nature-based, so... Um, uh, I guess it's also got a bit to do with the way we treat animals too and um, what we're doing to the planet. And I think sometimes I get this, like I think about evolution and it's just been going on nicely for million, hundreds of millions of years, just trundling on nicely. And then all of a sudden we've come along and we've just changed everything in the blink of an eye, you know, it's it's amazing. Mm. It baffles me. So I think a lot of my work's got to do with this kind of infiltration of technology, like it's some kind of force of its own, you know what I mean, like in the universe. Mm. It's like this power that's just come along, you know, and whether it's been created by some other life form and it's been brought here or whether it's just a byproduct of evolution... It's. I find it very fascinating. I'll, I want to. I want to throw something at you because I. I often try to figure out where, where's the line between something that is considered technology and just the natural inclination of an organism. If a bird builds a nest and uses materials from the world around it, is that a bird? A bird's technology? Is that its technology? Hmm. Getting quite existential, aren't we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only a few minutes in as well. <laughs> I guess that's just instinct, isn't it? Is it then instinctual to build coal power plants? Well, (laughs) hmm, that's tricky. It's tricky. Like you could say um, a monkey using a a little bit of um, grass to get ants out of that's technology too, isn't it? So, because they're now using tools. Yeah. So, and that's that's where we've come from in the first place. I think it's just the realization of using tools. Perhaps maybe that's where it begins. I think there's probably a grey area in between, but um, I think a lot of it's got to do also with um, self-realisation, like a a creature that is aware of itself. Uh, I think that's got a lot to do with the the difference between something that is just instinctual and something that is creating a new world, perhaps. Steve, um, same question for you. So we're talking about the rights of humans in a digital age. How does your art relate well, my work, it tends to be um, dismissed or, or assumed as being a digital creation uh, when I'm actually a photographer. So it's, it's one of the things that I've always had to deal with is uh, being very... Uh, 
uh, clear with my audience about the fact that what they're looking at has not been digitally manipulated or sort of fabricated. And we live in this world where when people are presented with something that they can't quite understand or they can't quite solve or put their finger on, they uh, sort of dismiss it or assume it just to be, uh, it's more comfortable for people to say, oh, the computer did it. So one of the aspects that I'm sort of looking at is uh, the right of using our imaginations in this digital world because I find even myself uh, guilty of it. You know, every time I've had to, to uh, solve a math equation in the last five years, I don't think I've done it in my mind. You know, I've gone straight from my iPhone. And uh, uh, with the technology that, that we have these days, we're sort of using our... Some are using their imaginations less and less. They're, you know, there's definitely the, the, the chance for that to happen. And, and one of the things I like to do with my artwork is uh, advance people's consciousness or, or allow them a, a moment to evolve their mind or at least uh, uh, tickle their imaginations in a way um, so we don't give that right away. You know, one of our rights as human beings is to actually uh, think and to, to imagine and to exercise our minds. Are you uh, aware of the concept of the uncanny valley? I hear it's a great place on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, I know about. what you're talking about. The uncanny... Yeah. Do, you want to, do you want to explain it to Steve? If you um, Basically, um, we're getting very good at creating things, like CG things, computerised things, but we still can't do people's faces, and that's a big problem, isn't it? <laughs> it is a big problem, and it gives you this eerie feeling, and I, one of the best examples that I can think of off the top of my head is um, there was a Final Fantasy movie a few years ago that came out that looked terribly realistic in almost every aspect of it, except there was something off about the look of, yep. of the human and faces. And Be- Beowulf, remember that one? Uh, I do. I didn't. I don't think I saw. I might have watched that one, but it was one of those like watched late at night with some friends. Again, and... same. Like, <laughs> looks beautiful. Everything looks amazing, and then you see the people talking to each other, and just go, "It's just not. It's, it, it's not right. They're not real." And it gives you this strange feeling. This uh, the the uncanny valley is, is named that way because there's points that it's obvious, obviously fictional. Like if, if you watch a cartoon of Mickey Mouse or something like that, you know that that's not real. And then there's points at which something is obviously real. Where in that point right now, I would hope. Um, if not, then you've got to check your matrix settings. Right. Um, and then there's this point where it dips down and at some point there's a, an almost crossover point where you can't quite tell um, the, the difference between what's real and what's something that's been generated by a computer or something like that um, and it gives people this uncomfortable feeling but it's starting to cross over into the real world now um, when we see things like uh, some of the uh, robots. I don't know if you might have seen some of these uh, robots that are coming out of Japan which uncannily look very human even in their facial expressions they're getting things that are are close Mm. and can even move in uh, very human ways and kind of starts to make people um, a little bit uncomfortable because I think then we rub up against the issue of what are our rights if um, there is a artificially intelligent something which is capable of similar sorts of cognitive reasoning to us Right. Yeah, it's something that's been on the sci-fi world for a long time, like Blade Runner and all that kind of stuff, but it's actually starting to become reality in our lifetime, and that's what's kind of scary.
Um, hi, my name is Andy Thomas. Um, I'm an artist doing a, an exhibition on Brunswick Street Gallery until the 15th of October. Hello and greetings. My name is Stephen Willis, and I am a uh, visionary artist. I use uh, light as my medium. I'm a photographer, and I am also uh, involved in the group exhibition The Rights of Humans in a Digital Age at the Brunswick Street Gallery, 322 Brunswick Street. And right now, you're on 3CR on Encyclopedia, 855am digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. We're speaking with Andy Thomas and Steve Willis, a.k.a. The Light Wizard. Uh, both are artists who are exhibiting at Brunswick Street Gallery right now, 322 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Uh, it's open until the 15th of October and uh, the hours are 10am until 8pm weekdays and 10am until 6pm weekends and no Mondays. Mondays are closed. Uh, so the, a few of the questions on the rise of humans in a digital age. Uh, this one particularly relevant, I think, on Tuesday, government data retention begins. Everybody's data in Australia is going to be swept up um, by all of the ISPs and the telcos. They are now obligated to keep your metadata for, what was it, two years or something like that. Uh, and it can be accessed by law enforcement without, uh, without a warrant and without much oversight. Any thoughts on this data retention scheme? Well, <clears throat> considering how much we all use technology these days... Um, you'd think that one of the rights we have as human beings uh, is just the, the privacy of our own, of our own thoughts and, and what, what we do uh, on our day-to-day -day that's n not affecting other people, you know, what we look at, the information that we choose to take in, the places where we choose to, uh, to access this information. So um, obviously that's heading in a direction that I don't think, I think we could all agree is, uh, is taking away from, from some of these rights. I think it's pretty clear that the government is using fear as a weapon to take us, to make us, you know, do stuff that is well, what the government wants us to do. It's an e-big brother, and there's there's some interesting um, research on the changes, and they're, they're, they're just minute changes in human psychology when people know that they're being watched as opposed to feel like they're in privacy and it's this kind of reflective uh, change that if somebody knows they're being watched they watch themselves more and they start to become more self-conscious and yeah. not necessarily in a good way either this is a self-conscious way which might you know drive anxieties which might people make people double think themselves or triple think themselves all the time it drives people a bit a bit batty yeah a bit batty a bit paranoid as well you know um, and, and yeah just fear-mongering really just just a per personal note on that um, is uh, you know just what I with our webcams on our computers, I actually put a piece of tape over it now because it makes me feel better. You know, yeah, that's a good um, idea. Yeah, I never really thought about it until my, my girlfriend brought it up to me. You know, and um, and then uh, I, I just look at this little eye looking at me, and, and it, it just it just makes me feel a little bit unsettled. You know, so I actually cover it up with with a bit of tape. And uh, yeah, <laughs> as a juxtaposition uh, to Australia's mandatory data retention scheme, um, Estonia—it's a country of 1.3 million people up the. Uh, sort of top northern, northwestern um, part of Europe, 
up against Russia. Do you know where Estonia is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, so Estonia, a country of 1.3 million people, it's a world leader in e-governance. Uh, in Estonia, you own your own personal data and you get to authorise and manage who accesses your data. Nearly all of their governance is paperless and they're working on a plan to back up all of their govern, uh, government data, um, especially considering that their sovereignty uh, is something which they sometimes worry about with Russia right there invading Ukraine when they feel like it and whatnot. Uh, so what do you think of that idea of electric, electronic governance where um, the assumed right of your data is that it is yours, not uh, not other people's to commercialise or to, to use for law enforcement purposes or whatever um, other purpose that, that people have? Yeah, well, I think that... Um, I think the thing is that it's a lot of... It goes to corporations, doesn't it? Like... So this whole thing of data retention, do we get to find out what the government uses that... Only through freedom of information, which will take weeks, you'll have to pay for, and you'll pretty much always get a template, no response back. So it's the perfect way of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. So more and more companies just get more and more data so they can sell more and more crap to people and... It's not just about controlling the masses. It's about controlling the masses through um, corporations. And and, and there's also some pretty uh, sinister stuff that goes on um, with uh, Facebook, for example. So there, totally. there are people who work with uh, Facebook to specifically manipulate the way, uh, the way that the timeline um, uh, shows in certain information to people, and they do it to try and engineer certain emotional results. So they, they basically look at people's status or a whole bunch of statuses and they go, okay, that's a positive one word that's a negative emotional word um and they get all that data and then they do something to the timeline and see if they can uh, get just just little changes little minuscule changes like will somebody be more happy if we have more puppies in the morning or something like that and it might sound very innocent but it's i i, I sort of think that that's the beginning of thought control almost it's, it's really we're, we're directing you on how to think now totally absolutely it's actually uh j- just another sign on on how we're 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 living in this sort of neurotic dream state state and uh, and focusing our attention on all these things that actually don't make sense uh, when you look at a bigger picture of us uh, living on a planetary system and uh, of like what we're doing is we're bickering and arguing over meaningless things we're fighting wars over religion and other such beliefs and uh, uh, using money um, like lying to each other manipulating each other for money uh, and gr- using greed and other sort of lower vibrational uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, things to keep us from living in harmony and uh, prospering on this planet together and dare I say uh, working together and perhaps even joining a galactic civilization of, uh, of friends and family who uh, would much prefer to see us work together and explore worlds together as opposed to poison ourselves poison uh, our, our life support system and burn ourselves to the ground you know I think there, there's a. I mean, there's a lot in what you've just said. Actually, there's a lot to be um, um, unpacked because there's. Um, I mean, I, f- I find it difficult sometimes. Is is this just a modern thing, or is this part innate in human psychology? Is this what religions talked about when they came up with um, um, uh, theologies of devils and hells and things like that? Were they really just reflecting on something inside the the human psyche that now certain people have figured out how to manipulate in even you know greater ways and that are more beneficial? 
beneficial to them but more detrimental to other people because, I don't know, maybe it's something about the limits of the human brain itself. Maybe we only have a certain capacity, emotional capacity, to understand other people to an extent and then it, and then it just, you know, we, we don't understand everyone in the world. It's really hard to know 7 billion people. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a brave new world. This is frontiers that we haven't even like thought about before like the internet has just changed everything so like social behaviors that we haven't even thought about before are now starting to come around you know like and and the problem is that we can't keep up with it because things are changing so fast so and i don't think um governments and corporations are helping out they're with you know it's just making things more and more difficult for people's lives governments are notoriously very uh, notoriously slow at at keeping up with change so i I think um a lot of our governance in australia is still operating like it did in the 19th century we've had a few tack on bits from the 20th century here and there and tack on bits from the 21st century which is why i was interested in that estonian government thing but when you've got a population of uh you know, a quarter of the population of Melbourne. It's probably a lot easier to to manage all of that um, all of that information. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Uh, my name's Nick, and I've got uh, Steve Willis, aka the Light Wizard, and Andy Thomas in the studio at the moment. And we're talking about the rights of humans in a digital age uh, because both of them are artists who are exhibiting right now at the Brunswick Street Gallery, 322 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy on until the 15th of October. And um, we've been talking about various different uh, technologies um, that are sort of changing the way that humans relate. And there's one of them, one one particular uh, topic that... Um uh, excites, fr- excites and frightens uh, hu- humans and has done so throughout the ages, and that's sex. Uh, sex bots and um, networked and interactive sex toys. Have you seen these sort of things that have started to become available? Um, it's bound to happen, isn't it? Yeah. Well, now yeah. there is something, uh, for example, I'll, I'll just throw a few examples out there so you know what I'm talking about. Um, an iPad, there is a... Do you know what a fleshlight is? It's like yeah, a, a, the opposite of a dildo. Yeah. I'm very familiar with those, yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so this attaches to the back of the iPad, and then people can well, connect no with way. their... Are you serious? People can... Well, the idea, the, the nice idea is you can connect with your partner on the other side of the world. And, right, you know, of course. Of but, of course, course it's, it's going to be capitalized by the pornography industries um, because... So, so it fits onto your iPad. It fits onto your iPad, and then your iPad fits onto you. Wow! And yeah. then you then you got to get the um, the glasses the 3D. on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 3D goggles. But yeah. what do you, I mean? This is this is um, one of our obviously our most intimate things. It's how we yeah. not only create new life, but it's also how we have a great time in, in this life. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about this this changing paradigm? That's just re- you know removing the need for a second party even. Well, you know they mm. always they always said that we would merge with technology. You know, I, I didn't think it would, it would come like, it would come like this uh, as a first thing but when you think about it of course it would be like this as, as a first thing but um uh, I, I think it it's uh you know it definitely points out uh, there's definitely a risk that i see um uh, with technology we are communicating with each other on a more on a personal human level less and less um even though you know through facebook and stuff it seems like we're, we're connecting with more people it's actually less human than it ever has been and I think as soon as you take away the need to actually uh, interact with another human being to get your rocks off or to make love, uh, then um, uh, we're, we're definitely running uh, you know, over some, some pretty uh, thin ice, I, I, I would reckon. That there's, there's part of that that, that should be 
celebrated as well. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're branching out and using technology for all different uh, sorts of things. And, and of course, uh, sex is going to be one of them. But I think we're definitely running the risk of disengaging with uh, the other, which is, um, uh, I think, counterproductive to, to moving forward as a race. How about this for an idea? All right. So you have sex with this thing that's attached to the iPad. Right. And then you give birth to a digital baby that's on an app. And then you look after the digital baby <laughs> like a Tamagotchi. I like it. I, like, yeah. I think you've got something there. Yeah, yeah. like a little um, Tamagotchi and you've yeah. created it yourself. I've does got it, ownership of that. Does it take like um, on parts of yourself as well? Like read your DNA? Does it have could a DNA do. reader? Yeah. yeah. That's a good idea. That's getting super creepy now. People will just be stuck in their rooms forever. All they would have yeah. to do is tap into all the data that, and know exactly who you are and what you, what you look at and everything like that. Yeah. You know? So yeah. you'd have a perfect little... <laughs> I think it, it starts to get a bit I mean it, it, it starts to get existential and a bit you know a lot of creepy philosophical questions come up but um, they're, they're the kind of questions that we need to start out asking because I mean Ray Kurzweil is the uh, one of the, the founding um, figures of the technological singularity as a, as a theory and the technological singularity is his theory that uh, technology and human anatomy will become intermelded and uh, superpowered um, and that at that point exponential and self-evolving um, change will happen so he doesn't know what's going to happen at that point um, Ray's uh, fairly reputable he's not just your um, sort of crazy, uh, you know, Alex Jones type or something like that. He, this is a guy who works for Google. He's um, he's their uh, their futurist. What uh, kind of time frame are we talking? Twenty forty five. Right, right. So this is Ray saying that Soon, by twenty forty five, and yeah. he's <laughs> he's giving it a date, which is uh, generally a no no for people that want to predict the future. But he, he's decided that he's uh, he's actually been right before in a few things. I think he uh, predicted when the internet would happen back in the the seventies. Um, and he predicted sort of rise of it in the um, early 90s and late 80s, although it was in a fledgling state in the um, in the 70s. Um, and he's predicted a few other things. So either he's getting coffee, cocky or he's really good at predicting these things. And he thinks by 2045, which I suspect is going to be in most of our lifetimes, um, I would hope so anyway, um, that the technological singularity could happen. Um, have you heard of this concept before? So we were talking about this off air just briefly, weren't we? So it's this point where um, we now become at one with technology and we are basically technology. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, if if we're not already in, in some manner, then, yeah, it is this kind of melding. And not only that, but it's also the melding of um, an artificial intelligence. It's the point at which an artificial intelli- intelligence reaches the point at which it is indistinguishable from human intelligence and then exponentially grows. I, I Personally, I think that that will definitely happen. Um, does it concern the, you? It does concern me, yeah, for sure, for sure, because we've... We don't, obviously, what we were talking about before, we don't give enough um, help to people with psychological issues and where where does that all lead? But I think also you have to think about, like, it's a um, quite a big, broad, sweeping kind of um, statement to make. There's always going to be a, in a group of society that is against technology and they'll do their own thing and they'll have their own, you know, they might be anti-technologists or something. They'll, all, they'll never just be one thing that just is humans like 
when you see in Star Trek, everyone's wearing the same outfit, you know, like mm. <laughs> something that happened where everyone's got different outfits, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so oh, that's just my take on it. Yeah, I think um, in, in one of the scenarios I read, I, I can't remember where I read this, but there's a, um, if you look on, on Facebook, there's a few singularity groups up out there that discuss the sort of issues that came up. Um, and one of the issues was... Um, Almost, I think they were suggesting almost creating a a, a human reserve for post uh, or pre-transhuman humans or Homo sapien humans that don't want to go with whatever happens in a technological singularity. But um, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a, we, we could probably do a whole show on that, and we're, we're running out of time now. But um, before we finish up, is there uh, anything um, final that uh, either of you would like to add? Well, I'd like to thank you very much for having us. Um, much, no, thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs> and um, I'd just like to uh, uh, say to uh, artists out there um, that uh, something that I find that, that helps right now, uh, talking about some of these things and, and if, if technology is going to help us or, or, or if it's bringing us back or if it can be e- evil or, or good, it's, it's more of a tool that uh, depends on who's using it. And for any sort of uh, extreme, uh, budding artists out there that are, that are getting their create, creative juices flowing, I'd just like to, to say that I've found that... Um, uh, there's a, there there can be if if you so choose a responsibility to sort of use uh, art for the betterment of mankind and for uh, sort of advancing society and uh, and humanity and um, uh, uh, as an artist you're allowed to channel information uh, from somewhere and you're allowed to bring something into fruition into this world that did not. Uh, exist until you brought it in. So th- there's a lot that's very potent sort of stuff there. Um, so just uh, just with talking about technology and, and where we're going and what we're going to be doing, um, uh, you know, uh, any creators out there that are doing anything, uh, I think uh, having a clear intention of where you're coming from uh, will definitely help to steer that ship in one way or another. So... Mm. Thank you. And Steve. please feel free to contact um, on Facebook or email and it's it can be a lonely world being an artist sometimes. It's good to you know, communicate with each other and help each That's other true. out with stuff. Community. Community is yeah. what it's all about. And yep. one of the best ways to do that is to head down to the Rights of Humans in a Digital Age Gallery, uh, or Exhibition, sorry, at the Brunswick Street Gallery. It's on until the 15th of October at 322 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Uh, there will be links uh, to both Steve's and Andy's uh, work on the Facebook page, 3cr.org.au, and follow, follow the links to In Psychedelia. You can find um, our Facebook page and Twitter link there. And the gallery is open 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. weekdays, which is perfect for those people who finish work and do the 9 to 5 thing and then can That's go fine. straight after work. And 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. on weekends. Uh, and it's closed on Monday. And Andy and Steve, thank you both for coming in today. Thank you very Andrew. much. It was thank great, you. great to be here. You can now hear 3CR in three different ways. The same content is broadcast on all platforms. 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Digital radio is a new way of broadcasting. Listeners need to have a digital radio to hear the 3CR Digital. 3CR Digital is broadcast throughout the Melbourne metropolitan area only. 3CR is still broadcasting on 8.55am, so everyone can keep listening on their existing radio. Digital radio is clearer, higher quality signal. That means there's no interference from trans. 
This is in Psychedelia on 3CR, and uh, this week has been a busy week in Melbourne, uh, with Wednesday... Uh uh, Wednesday, the seventh of October, Dalgano Institute, which is a uh, uh, they claim to be a, um, a drug and alcohol abstinence um, organisation. Um, they're also a bit of an evangelical front group. Uh, they had their AGM and uh, had a speaker from the US uh, down to speak at their AGM. His name's Kevin Sabat, and he is a proponent for the continued prohibition um, of all drugs, especially cannabis, because he's uh, been seeing the legalisation of cannabis across his country. Uh, he advised three different US presidential administrations on drug policy, and uh, he has a, a PhD in social policy. Uh, he stands against legalised regulated law reform, um, although he... Uh, is very well spoken on the issues, I suppose. He, he can make his case quite, uh, quite well. And he also spoke at the National Cannabis Prevention and Information Centre Conference, um, which was uh, sponsored by the Dalgano Institute this week, and that went, ran from Wednesday to, to Friday. Um, you can follow on Twitter the hashtag CannabisConference2015 uh, for some of the tweets. And big news in Victoria this week with the uh, Victorian Law Reform Commission's report on medical cannabis being tabled in Parliament and accepted by a majority of that Parliament. Uh, it looks like Victoria is going to be the first state to get its medical cannabis uh, scheme up and running uh, early in 2017. So this is going to... Uh, provide access to treatment for people with muscle spasms and severe pain from multiple sclerosis, nausea, vomiting and wasting from cancer or HIV AIDS, epileptic seizures uh, that have been treatment resistant, and for people suffering severe chronic pain, which is a really important one with what we've seen overseas in the uh, subsequent reduction in opioid overdose deaths. So uh, essentially it's going to set up a new regulatory body um, the cannabis growing is going to be licensed through the Secretary of the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources. And then the products are going to be purchased through the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services and distributed through the pharmacy system. Right. So okay. that's some of the nuts and bolts of how it's going to work. It's definitely uh, different to how it works um, in the US and uh, in Canada. I think it's similar to Canada, but Canada has experienced um, all sorts of uh, teething problems uh, because of the overly bureaucratic nature of... That's right, and, and that was acknowledged in some of the submissions to the, the report. There is allowances within the regulatory system to to loosen it up a little bit with doctors being able to prescribe it for things outside of those ones that I mentioned. So it does allow for a little bit of flexibility. Excellent. And we'll, we'll probably uh, talk a little bit more about that in coming weeks. We'll be back from 2pm on Sunday next week. Queering the Air is up on 3CR Community Radio uh, straight after us. And uh, we're, we're heading across to the Fitzroy Beer Garden if you're interested for Melbourne Psychedelic Club. Come and join us. Uh, we'll see you next week. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the In Psychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. In Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. 
If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to In Psychedelia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page.